they looked at it, the clouds parted and the sun shone out. The yes. golden shape was lit up from end to end. Oh, wait, no, never mind. That's something different. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but no, actually, no, no. yes, though. Oh, actually, no. yes, though. I mean, that's still the same. Well, that idea. was illuminating the statue, but then can it goes we, on. Can, to... Hold on. Okay, can we actually okay, back up okay, a little okay, bit okay, and maybe so we can talk about that? Maybe okay, this, okay. this would be a good segue into it. Sure, sure. Into the part about the golden pool. Yes. Do you want to lead us into it? So there's this golden pool. (laughs) Welcome to Beyond the Lamppost, a podcast dedicated to engaging the world of the Chronicles of Narnia. I'm Shannon. And I'm Stephen. Here we reflect on our experience as siblings growing up in Narnia and journey deeper into its world with the eyes of young adults. Today, we're discussing The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, chapters 5 through 8. Today's episode starts right in the middle of our discussion, so be sure to catch up on part one before listening. We can start moving on, perhaps, to the next chapter, chapter 8. Two narrow escapes. There's another dragon. That's the first narrow escape. It's a sea serpent. Yes. A lot like the Leviathan, interestingly enough. Yes. I wonder, there's some significance in the fact that this serpent is described as a brute and as stupid. Interesting. Lewis says they pushed the brute off of the ship. Oh, yeah. And, and it then was when so they... stupid that it was nosing around and thought that it had actually crushed the Dawn Treader when it really hadn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When the Dawn Treader was sailing away and he thought he had it in his grasp or something. I wonder if that's, if that's getting at the idea that chaos is opposed to reason. We have Mm. these dark, irrational, chaotic parts deep Mm -hmm. inside of us, and the sea serpent is kind of embodying that. In contrast, the sun is what makes things visible. It's what makes things clear. Mm. It's the light of reason in the imagination of Plato and of Boethius and other philosophers. Oh, oh, oh. So... When they're at the the pool that turns things into golden, and Aslan appears, it says, and so happened that as they looked at it, the clouds parted and the sun shone out. The golden shape was lit up from end to end. There's something about the sun shining that brings clarity. I feel like this is a good segue into the next narrow escape that they have, which is Goldwater Island. So there's this golden pool that they notice this statue in, and Edmund takes a spear and tries to see how big the or how far the golden statue is down there um and then he drops it because his spear turns into solid gold and they see that everything that they dip in turns into solid gold and caspian and the edmund, tips of edmund's boots yeah turn to gold. some heather they put in um caspian and edmund start fighting over uh who should have possession of this mm. island to be really rich and everything. And Greed and competition they start are coming back They start hurting on each other. I wonder if there's almost like a connection between, they describe the sun a lot in mm-hmm. this in this scene um, and sort of how like being in the sun and the heat from the sun can like turn you into, put you into this trance. And maybe yes. not here literally, yeah. but more figuratively, they're put into this disillusioned trance of greed. Here, I think we see the, the sun as alchemist yeah. quite a bit. Things are being turned into gold. But also, one could ask maybe, is this a transformation that's happening? 
just as things are turned to gold in the water, are Edmund and Caspian and the others maybe turned into greedy and selfish people? One could ask that question, although one might just as well ask whether maybe they didn't always have the, have that lurking inside of them from right. the beginning. Right, In a small way. Interesting. But then, do you want to read this quote of what happens when Aslan shows up? And especially take note of the sun. Across the gray hillside above them, gray, for the heather was not yet in bloom, without noise and without looking at them, and shining as if he were in bright sunlight, though the sun had in fact gone in, passed with slow pace the hugest lion that human eyes have ever seen. Nobody dared to ask what it was. They knew it was Aslan. Oh my gosh. Silence. Silence shows up so often. It showed up on Dragon Island. It showed up on the Burnt Island, which they found uninhabited. There's silence everywhere here. That went way over my head. That is so interesting. It's really intriguing. It tends to be ominous. It's a little bit ominous here, but maybe there's just something about that suspenseful majesty or something. But here he's bringing light. He's bringing clarity. And when they see him, they come to their senses. Rationality is restored. Mm -hmm. They're not illusioned anymore he clears up their greed seeing aslan and setting their eyes on him broke the curse that was on them exactly his light scattered their clouds yeah and that's why he's the true and better son yeah i feel like there's even like so much more to unpack there i can see it there's a lot of good stuff here and i think we'll continue to unpack it as we go along not right now as you bite your (laughs) lip (laughs) in restraint at the end, once they get to Aslan's country, there's an important phrase, behind the sun. Whoa. <laughs> and Lewis uses that phrase elsewhere in his letters to Malcolm when he talks about, what do I mean by the glory? I mean the light behind the sun. So yes, do I want to talk about Plato's Republic and the allegory of the cave? <laughs> yes, I do. Okay, but we don't have time. Do I want to talk about Boethius and the consolation of philosophy? Yes, I do, but we don't have time. Reepicheep talks about philosophers too. Because the sun is the philosopher's orb. It represents the light of rationality, reason that brings clarity, makes things visible. It's a very common image in this way. But the consolation of philosophy was honestly like one of Lewis's favorite and most influential books on him. We see the idea of the wheel of fortune actually being associated with the consolation of philosophy quite a bit. Mm. And as Rupacheep said, the turning of fortune's wheel. Mm. Mm Mm-hmm. This is... Are you familiar with the idea of the Wheel of Fortune? This is an image that shows up in the medieval world. No, it's not just a game show. I was going to say. That's a pun. <laughs> That's a spoof yeah. on the Wheel of Fortune. It's the idea that the way that fortune turns, it goes up and it goes back down again. And there's no predicting it. Okay, Things all of... go well, but they can't go well forever. All of what you said is all in when... Reepicheep visits Eustace when he's a dragon in this yes. quote. That Reepicheep would explain the striking illustration of the turn of fortune, fortune's wheel and that if he were in his own house in Narnia, he could show him more than a hundred examples of emperors and philosophers and magicians who had fallen from prosperity into the most distressing circumstances and of whom many had recovered and lived happily ever after afterwards. It did not perhaps seem so very comforting at the time, but it was kindly meant, and Eustace never forgot it. Having someone sit and, like, explain philosophy to you while you're (laughs) suffering is just not a good thing. But you know what? Reepicheep meant well by it. 
He was trying to be nice. But I just see a lot of what you were just talking about pop up in there. Fortune's Wheel, Philosophers. Oh, absolutely. Fate. Yeah. That's what it's about. Yeah. And I thought it was just Reepicheep being cute. I mean, it's that too. It is that too. (laughs) Okay, there's something else I want to discuss and unpack here. What's that? How benevolent sexism shows up in the Chronicles of Narnia, but I'm especially noticing in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader. Can you define that term? So, um, Psychology Today article titled, Why Are Women Attracted to Benevolently Sexist Men? defines benevolent sexism as a subjectively positive, but nevertheless stereotypical view of women. Namely, benevolently sexist men believe that women need help and protection Mm. and are best suited to traditional gender roles. Now, again, I recognize because I'm taking class on equality, gender equality, that I'm zeroing in on this because I'm kind of just seeing everything through this lens right now. I've um, noticed it too, though. Yeah. In these, in these sections, the way Lucy is treated by the rest of the crew. Yes. There are some specific examples, but uh, before I dive into that, I do want to just point out that there is a tendency in our culture to like maybe point out sexism in stories and completely write off the authors as just like in the wrong or label the works as just completely stupid, kind of just throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I think maybe a lot of people who just have opposing beliefs in all different worldviews have this tendency, myself included. Mm. So I want to see that tendency myself, but like still examine the subtle messages in this story regarding gender with a realistic lens. You want to look at the book critically, but not write it off entirely. Exactly. I'm Mm -hmm. examining the male hierarchy in the culture that I've been familiar with most of my life and sort of picking it apart, trying to rebuild my beliefs. And I think recognizing it in the messages I heard as a child is an important step in that process. How do you see benevolent sexism playing out in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader? So, you know... There are things like the fact that Caspian gave Lucy his cabin and also that, you know, Lucy wasn't battling the serpent. She had to mm. not fight the serpent or yeah. like during the during the storm when Caspian told Lucy to go below deck to keep safe while everyone else was trying to protect the ship. This is sort of consistent with Lewis's view of gender roles. Seeing, yeah. Um, even in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Father Christmas says to Lucy that she's not meant to fight. Exactly. aren't meant to fight. Yes, this is sort of a continuation of that conversation we started. But I think, you know, these are very subtle messages. I recognize that, like, Lewis isn't out to get women here, or this is a lot of the reflection of the times. I think you may mm-hmm. have mentioned once that, like, just generally there weren't a lot of women on ships um, or representation there. You know, this story mm-hmm. does not pass the Bechdel test, which is this test for female representation of like if there are two women who have one conversation about anything other than a man um does it pass the Bechdel test this story does not pass the Bechdel test yeah I wonder if it might actually there are a couple of characters later on uh on the island with the monopods but we'll have to see We'll have to see. It is true that there's not much female representation in this book. Right. You know what? Those later stops on the voyage are very hazy in my mind, so you might be right. Maybe there is. We'll have to revisit this. It might pass by a technicality, but there's Lucy is very outnumbered in this story. That is very true. That is very true. So I think it's just something to recognize um, and, you know, kind of call out and name these subtle messages that are in these stories and 
That's all I have to say on the matter. I will get off my soapbox, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. What do you say? Should we do some top quotes? Give us a little top quotes theme song, Stephen. Top quotes, top quotes. Wow. That was a very different Top Coats theme song than any of the other ones. It's very like... Sailing triumphantly yes. into the east? <laughs> yes. Well, that's what we're about here. That is fabulous. I love that. I love that. It captures the vibe of this episode. Give us your Top Coats, Shannon. Do you have any? Yes, I do. First one. <clears throat> Lucy thought she was the most fortunate girl in the world as she woke each morning to see the reflections of the sunlight water dance on the ceiling of her cabin and then she would go on the deck and take a look from the forecastle at a sea which was brighter blue each morning and drink in an air that was a little warmer day by day mm. isn't that gorgeous it's a very vivid image it's beautiful i love those moments that lewis sort of just stops for a minute and it just enjoys the beauty Interesting that it's getting warmer every day. They're actually getting closer to the sun. Oh. Because we're talking about a flat earth here, and the sun actually yeah. lives in the east, and it rises, and then it goes down, and it actually sets in the west. Wait, Narnia is a the flat earth. earth? Yes. When did we find this out? <laughs> uh, in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, I guess. Okay, wow. We'll see yeah, it I more guess that and makes more sense. as the book they're, progresses. They're sailing to the sun. Yeah, yes. okay. Of course that makes sense. I just never made that connection in my mind for some reason. Not actually the medieval view of the cosmos. Mm. Interestingly enough. Yeah. But it is the way Narnia is. It's more of a it's a more ancient view of the con of the cosmos than the Middle Ages. All right, give me one of your top quotes. I think perhaps my very favorite comes from chapter six when they've just met Eustace in the form of the dragon, but they don't know that it's him. No, Reepicheep, said the king very firmly. You are not to attempt a single combat with it. <laughs> and unless you promise to obey me in this matter, I'll have you tied up. I love the... I just picturing Reepicheep wanting to just battle a dragon on his own. It's so great. And I remember from the audio drama version, just Reepicheep's reaction in the background. Oh, yeah, just like, <laughs> oh, oh, he's just so disappointed. Okay, uh, my, my next one is also Reepicheep-centric. This is when they're still... This is from the beginning of the section when they're still on Falamath preparing to journey out again. This is talking about Lucy and Reepicheep. It says, She spent a good deal of time sitting on the little bench in the stern playing chess with Reepicheep. It mm. was amusing to see him lifting the pieces, which were far too big for him, with both paws and standing on tiptoes if he made a move near the center of the board. He was a good player, and when he remembered what he was doing... He usually won, but every now and then Lucy won because the mouse did something quite ridiculous, like sending a knight into danger of a queen and castle combined. This happened because he had momentarily forgotten it was a game of chess and was thinking of a real battle and making the knight do what he would certainly have done in its place, for his mind was full of forlorn hopes, death or glory charges, and last stands. Classic Reepicheep. <laughs> so good. I actually have four top quotes this Whoa. time, but here's my second one. Okay. This comes when Eustace is telling Edmund about the story of his transformation, and he encounters Aslan, but he talks about actually being afraid of Aslan, even though he was bigger in size than this lion was at the mm. time. You may think that being a dragon, I could have knocked any lion out easily enough, but it wasn't that kind of fear. 
I wasn't afraid of it eating me. I was afraid of it, if you can understand. Hmm. It's really intriguing. I never really caught on to this before when I was younger. But since the last time I read The Voyage of the Dawn Trader, I actually read Lewis's book, The Problem of Pain. Yeah. He makes a reference in there to precisely this type of distinction between two kinds of fear. He references Rudolf Otto's category, the numinous, which is basically the sense of something supernatural. Mm. He actually draws the distinction of being afraid when you're told there's a tiger in the next room, in which case you're afraid of the tiger maybe eating you or harming you in some way, and being told that there's a ghost in the next room. It's not so much that you're afraid of what the ghost will do to you, you're afraid of what the ghost is. Yeah. There's something haunting about it. Interesting. And there's something about this apparition of Aslan here. Yeah. Eustace has no categories for it. It's on a very spiritual level that's kind of intangible, but very impactful. He's not scared as much as he is haunted. Yeah. Do you have any more quotes? Well, you said you had four. Do you want to share your next one? Sure, I'll share my next one. This one's also about Aslan and takes place in the same conversation. Eustace asks, but who is Aslan? Do you know him? Well, he knows me, said Edmund. Mm. He is a great lion, the son of the emperor beyond the sea, who saved me and saved Narnia. We've all seen him. Lucy sees him most often. Mm. There's so much there. I think, for one thing, the idea of the emperor beyond the sea... Is something that's kind of looming in the background throughout the voyage of the Dawn Treader. The idea that there is an emperor who lives beyond the sea. Yeah. Beyond the realm of this world and this experience. But they're heading toward his yeah. country, trying to find him, toward the sun. Yeah. The other thing is the idea that the most central and most important thing is that Aslan knows Edmund and knows Lucy and knows everyone, not so much their own experience of him. Edmund certainly can't claim to know Aslan. He doesn't know everything about him. He doesn't, you know, know the ins and outs of who he is, but he recognizes that Aslan knows the ins and outs of who he is. Mm. He has that reverence for him. And everyone has experienced him. He has, Lucy has, but not everyone has in the same way. Yeah. And that's okay. Yeah, yeah. Lucy is the most mystical. Yes. In her inclination out of any of the characters in the books. And there's something so captivating about that. And I love seeing her in this story. But Edmund doesn't have that same experience. And that's and all that's right. that's okay. Oh my gosh. Because Aslan knows him. Yeah. And that's the main thing. Oh, that is so good. When I read that line, like I knew there was something else there, but I didn't quite know how to say it. That You hit the nail on the head. That is really powerful. He has a security that's not based in his own experience, but based in what he knows to be true yeah. of Aslan, who is beyond himself yeah. and more powerful. Yeah, so good. All I right. have one more, but I'll give it after yours. Okay. Mine is... Um, after Eustace is transformed back into a boy, C.S. Lewis says, It would be nice and fairly nearly true to say that from that time forth Eustace was a different boy. To be strictly accurate, he began to be a different boy. He had relapses. There were still many days he could be very tiresome, but most of those I shall not notice. The cure had begun.
this highlights a very important theme in the whole book. I think yeah. you mentioned last episode that the main theme of this story is the Christian life. Mm-hmm. Um, Eustace's journey is very the spiritual ref- life. The yeah. spiritual life. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, Eustace's journey is very reflective of, as we said before, surrendering to God and letting Him transform us. But also that it doesn't matter that you get it right right away. It matters mm-hmm. that your heart is in the right place and you are on the right trajectory. Yes. The trajectory that Eustace was on before would have led him to absolute self-destruction yes. the way it did, I think, for the Lord Octesian. It led him not only to exactly. isolation, but ultimately to death. Yeah. Eustace was on that path until Aslan got hold of him, turned him around, and set him on a different road. Yeah, that's good. But he's making progress, and that's yeah. the thing. All right, give me our last top quote of the day. Here's another humorous one. They're there, they make an inscription of what happened at Dragon Island. They're about to leave. And they take the Lord Octesian's golden arm ring, the one that Eustace, as a dragon, had stuck on his arm. Yeah. And Caspian throws it up into the air. And he says, very well then, catch as catch can. And that's in chapter 7. And this is just memorable for me because we had, (laughs) there was a family living with us at one point in time. And uh, they were just very good friends. But they actually used this phrase, catch as catch can, to talk about um, when it's dinner time and everybody just does their own thing and it gets leftovers from the fridge. That's called catch as catch can. And so now that's what I think of. People just getting leftovers from the fridge All right. on their own. That's I like catch it. Catch can. I like it. That's great. All right. Well, join us next time as we cover chapters 9 through 11. Yes. Is that correct? I believe it is. No. <laughs> 9, 10, 11, 12. 9 through 12. 9 through 12, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Thank you very much. Lots to unpack in this episode, so we would really love to hear your insights and comments so you can email us at beyond the lamppost podcast at gmail.com you can also check out our facebook page to get updates even message us there if you want we would love it if you could leave a review for us on apple podcasts but yes until next time and remember if you see a dragon you are not to attempt a single combat with it it's a good rule to live by Stephen. i try to apply it to my own life as much as i can Farewell, one and all. Our theme song is by Jacob Parada. Check out more of his music at jacobparada.com.